Hello and welcome to the Story X Story podcast where we discuss stories across pop culture plus give you advice on creating your own. It's episode number 67 and I am your co-host Nigel. I'm Tazzy, content creator and co-host. And our returning guest for this episode is author and video game writer at the Coalition website, Gary Swaby. Gary, welcome to the show. Welcome back to the show. Oh, hey, good to be back again. Um, thank you for allowing me to keep coming back because I, I always enjoy, you know, these story-based discussions that we have here. Yeah, once you you pass the, the test of the first episode and you just like uh, come back <laughs> whenever. So that's the that's the policy here. And I will, I can't remember how many times you've been, you've been on, but it's, it's a fair few. Now, the last episode was when we were discussing uh, Rogue One for episode 44. So I'll put a link to that in the show notes so people can check that out. I'm still, I promise I will have like some kind of uh, leaderboard or something to keep track of all all the guests and how uh, when they've been on and uh, and all that stuff. So I'll do something like that on the website. But um, yeah, Gary has been with us uh, for a number of episodes and uh, glad to have you back. As always, I believe, uh, I believe this is the fourth time. Sorry to cut you there off. There you go. Fourth yeah. time. Okay, cool. We got that. So, all right. Yeah, you're up there. You're definitely up there. It's cool. Like we've been doing the, the podcast like long enough. We start to get like just that recurring guest thing, which is quite cool. So yeah, as always, you can subscribe to Story X Story on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, wherever you get your podcast from. You can also send us feedback and questions to feedback at myamada.com in our discord or on social media we are at my on twitter at my tv on instagram or at tazzy on both we're going to get started as we do with the latest happenings in the my universe so we are in that stage where our latest manga through the fog is slowly coming together so as you listen to this uh, we are working through the the artwork uh, for the new book uh, we did a kickstarter for this last year in 2020 it took <laughs> took longer than uh, than originally anticipated i guess that's not unusual for kickstarters but we are working on putting the artwork together um, one of the good things that has happened is that since starting to write the story uh, we've been able to take on some interns we have a, a writing intern and a concept art intern also uh, working on the story so yeah we're going to be sharing as well as like the page artwork some of that as it comes together some concept art just to give a direction of where we're going with the story and yeah the aim is to get it um, by the end of uh, June or early July uh, which ties in fairly well with the uh, lifting of uh, lockdown restrictions here in the UK so it's a story about a pandemic in this uh, in this world and the characters, Blake and his team um, at Supernova, having to deal with the professional and personal uh, sort of impact of a, a pandemic in their world. So it's very much uh, for these times. Uh, so yeah, looking forward to sort of getting that out. Uh, we're going to be sharing progress, like I said, uh, online. Uh, our Kickstarter backers will get some exclusive uh, look at some of the artwork, uh, as well as Studio 77 members. And we're going to be talking more about the story and the process of making it at our mid-season live stream special. So one of the segments we're going to get started with, we'll have, um, as well as Tazi and myself, uh, Penali Lau and Lara Lee on talking about 
yeah, the process of making it, the serious story, Maya Mada in general. So that is on Saturday, the 12th of June. So yeah, we can check that out. We're going to be streaming that over Twitch. And yeah, come and join us. We're going to be, as well as Maya Mada stuff, talking about stories, our stories of the year so far. And um, we're going to have a bunch of guests for that. So we're going to be talking about that uh, online and on the podcast as well. Uh, for May and Studio 77, we are going to be <laughs> playing Fortnite for our games night. Uh, how do you feel? How are you feeling about that, Tazzy? You, oh no, you've played it before, though. Yeah, I'm fine. Uh, I've played it for a while, but you shoot things. It's fine. It's just if you try building that you might be a bit like, what? But I okay. generally don't even build, so you can just join me in the I don't build gang. So okay, cool. I, I mean, <laughs> I'm just I'll do what Tazzy does. So. So yeah, you can catch that on Thursday the 27th, which is the day this podcast goes out. So yeah, if you're listening to this, head over to Twitch. If not, then the VOD will still be available 14 days afterwards and Studio 77 members, uh, yeah, we'll be playing with them and then we'll put some highlights out on YouTube so you can actually see the highlights of the Roblox Games Night on YouTube. Uh, so that was a lot of fun uh, as well. And later into summer, we're going to have our Gamepad online event. So Saturday, the 10th of July, live on Twitch, we'll be bringing you another round of our Friendly Fire competition with games Swim Sanity, Brawlhalla, Rocket League, another lot of teams uh, competing for cool prizes, another round of interviews. So we've got a couple that are confirmed that are on the website. Uh, a few others were waiting for confirmation. Um, it's going to be hosted by Tazzy and tickets are free so that combination is uh is great so you can check out uh the gamepad.events for information about that we're also going to be working on uh summer uh gaming artwork uh, to mark the event so we'll be sharing the high-res versions with discord uh, with our discord community and raffling off a print version so canvas printed version of that artwork to one lucky ticket holders so yeah look out for more information on that in the coming uh weeks and month uh, and a bit and yeah join us it's always a kind of good time where uh, sort of enjoying doing the online events we're going to continue doing them and hopefully bring back physical events once we are able to do that so uh, we'll just be doing both so there'll be something for everyone to get involved with so that is all we've got for Maya Mada at the moment Let's find out what everyone has been enjoying story-wise this week. So it's time to get into our spoiler-free discussion about what what stories everyone has been reading, watching, or playing. So we'll start with our guest, Gary. What have you been been watching or reading? Okay, um, so recently I haven't actually been watching a lot, but I've been reading a lot. So there's two books that I'm actually going to talk about. Um, one of them is The Poppy War by uh, Rebecca Kuang. And uh, this is actually um, a fantasy kind of adventure book. Um, and it follows a young girl named Rin. And uh, the setting is like a, a, a real uh, medieval China uh, setting kind of thing. It's like it's the, the the country is based on China, and the actual story is based on Chinese um, history and everything, and and different wars um, in history's past. And basically, in the, in the story, Rin is uh, she's an orphan, and she actually 
has been taken in by parents who, uh, well, foster parents who are kind of uh, selling opium illegally, and they use her to kind of sell the opium around the town and everything. Um, but all Rin wants to do is kind of escape and go to the military school, which is uh, nearby. I believe the school is called Sign Guard. Um, so she, her, her desire is to kind of leave the town and go to this military school. And she actually um, ends up taking the exam and she passes with flying colors. And she's actually, she gets the top marks out of everyone in the town. And she's accepted by the military school. And there she kind of learns all these different things about um, combat and uh, military strategy and everything for, for two years. And uh, along the way, she kind of makes a lot of, uh, you know, um, very interesting decisions about what she wants out of her life. And uh, this leads to like a big kind of war from with because there's like a, a, a different faction, a different section of the country that's looking to invade their side. And um, so this kind of leads into a big war and the book gets very brutal very quickly. So like the first kind of 20% uh, of the book, it feels sort of like a Harry Potter story. But after that, it just gets like completely brutal um, in terms of, you know, the war and everything. And the book really puts you into the battlefield and makes you like feel the the dangers of of war like um and you know that's what i really loved about the book just the way the author was able to describe rin's feeling of of being thrown into an actual war for the first time despite having learned all of these different uh strategies and techniques and uh, along the way she actually learns that she has a special kind of uh ability um like magical ability where she can um summon a god of sorts and this is actually enhanced by the use of opium so there's a lot of moral you know things in the story where it's like is it okay to kind of use opium to summon these gods and everything so uh, it's a very deep book it probably sounds well i'm probably not explaining it very well it probably sounds a bit crazy but um, I highly recommend this if you are into, you know, really dark fantasy fiction. And the other book I, I've been reading is another fantasy story, which is Warbreaker by Brandon Sanderson. And uh, this book is a bit more simple in terms of, you know, the story. Um, it's basically about uh, a king who he has like four, no, he has three daughters and one son. And uh, they, there's basically a, a, a rival a rival kingdom nearby and the rival kingdom kind of has uh, magic so like they're able to uh it's hard to explain it's um so like they can they have like people who are living but they're actually dead and the way they stay alive is by stealing the breath from from a mortal person so like every week they kind of have to um, steal the breath from somebody to kind of stay alive in the present present world. And then they also have like other magical abilities as well. Like uh, they can use colors to kind of perform different magic and things like that. Um, I'm still very early on, so I haven't kind of seen the true depths of this magic, but it seems pretty creative um, from what I've read so far. Is this a new saga from... 
no this this is actually a it's a standalone so uh but it's pretty oh, okay. old actually oh wow. um it's it's a few years old now i think because i started reading way of kings which is like a different a new saga because i like brandon sanders said I've, I've read uh the mistborn uh trilogy and then the other books that kind of followed on from that that's like some of my favorite books and then i started reading sort of way of kings still relatively early but yeah i was like when you mentioned i was like if i missed something or uh so it's a standalone thing yeah yeah standalone but um that's what i always love about brandon sanderson because he comes up with these like you know really crazy uh magic systems that are like mm. out of this world like you, you i don't even know how he how he's able to imagine these things like so yes yeah, it's, it's very uh whimsical and fantastical um and basically what happens is uh so the king of i think the the king the, the main kingdom is called idris and he has three daughters and uh one of them has been training to kind of marry off to the rival kingdom her whole life so like she's she's kind of been expecting her her father the king to send her off to marry you know the, somebody at the rival kingdom to prevent a war from happening but on the day that she he's meant to make the decision he decides to send his youngest his youngest daughter and um i haven't finished the story yet but i think his logic there was that um the oldest girl who has been training to mar marry off to the rival kingdom he feels that um, she's better served staying, at, you know, in the kingdom. Um, so he sends off the youngest one because he feels that, you know, if the rival kingdom are up to some dodgy things and they, they, they're going to kill, you know, whoever they send or whatever, then um, at least he, you know, kind of has. So, so, yeah, it's pretty deep as well, you know, in, in, in that respect. Um, but that's that's what i kind of like about these fantasy stories because there's a lot of like morally gray areas it's like it really uh puts the characters to the test and force them to make these you know hard decisions um and you know i like to to kind of uh i like to kind of read about things like that so yeah that's pretty much what i've been reading lately i also do want to mention uh that you know somebody passed away it was a uh, kentaru uh meet I, th I can't pronounce his name. I think it's Miura, who uh, created the Berserk series, which is a popular popular manga um, and anime series. I actually got into this series recently, um, so I felt compelled to kind of mention that and just say, you know, rest in peace, because uh, it's always a sad thing when a creator of something you love passes away before it's actually finished, because so, the story is ongoing. So, mm -hmm. so yeah just wanted to mention that as well yeah I, i've watched like the first two episodes of the anime for berserk but that's as far as i've got that's really sad yeah so i haven't actually been really i haven't really started many new stories or finished new stories recently but i've got like a couple that i've literally just started uh, so i've started playing dragon quest builders 2 which is like a I don't know how to explain it. The, the like, feel I got from it was like Minecraft meets The Legend of Zelda in a game. And it's like a story thing and you're, you're a builder. So you're, you're, you can fight, but you're not much of a fighter. And you sort of like end up on this island uh, after a shipwreck. And you are then tasked to 
build on this island. Uh, but to do that, you need to go to other islands to learn how to do different things. And the first island you go to, you're learning how to farm. And yeah, I quite like the story. I don't really know like how to explain it, but I'm enjoying it because I really like I like the idea of Minecraft and being able to build. Uh, but then I always get to this point like, what am I doing? Why am I doing? So this gives you like a story to go with it, which is it's cute. And it's like it's my go to relax game at the moment. Like when I need some self-care time, it's my go to because it's super cute and just has like a really easygoing storyline. And then the other thing I've just literally just started watching, I've watched one episode is The Nevers, which is like a sci-fi kind of drama set in the like Victorian times. Um, and basically these women have these powers or abilities and someone is trying, is kidnapping these women. Uh, well, kidnapping them when they're young girls. And then you the first episode you're following a woman who is trying to find them and help them uh, sort of like understand their abilities. It's pretty cool. I love anything that's set like in kind of like an old, old England type era with, you know, a nice sci-fi element. But yeah, it's, I've literally just one episode in. Is that on Netflix or Prime or something? It's so it's on Sky in the UK at the moment. Yeah, I feel like oh, I've okay. seen an ad for this. Yeah, I'm not sure when it came out in the UK. I know it got released earlier in the US because it's HBO. Yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing it unfold. I This is one that I got to work as an extra on as well, so I'm like hoping I can spot myself. Oh, nice. <laughs> Which I completely forgot about. Until I saw Seriously? someone like, yeah, I completely <laughs> forgot until I saw someone, they would like, they'd done an ad for like, ad promo post for it. And I was like, oh, I saw it in that show. <laughs> so like when you actually did like the extra work, do they tell you what it's for? Or do they just basically like tell you what you have to do and, and then you just do it kind of thing? Um, For this one in particular, they did tell us quite, well, they told us roughly what the show was about. And then told us about what was happening in the scene in particular, uh, right. so that we could react accordingly. But yeah, that that was an unusually large amount of information than what I'm used to. So, but I think it's because it's a completely new series. So I'm looking forward to to seeing it and seeing if that scene made the cut. Because <laughs> if so, it's a very interesting scene. And now that I've seen the first episode, I'm like, oh, oh, you start putting pieces together. Yeah, start thinking like, oh, okay. But yeah, it was definitely a fun fun show to be on set for. So I'm impressed with the first episode. So I feel like it's going to be a good show. I'm not just being biased. Well, that's an extra reason to check out. <laughs> but yeah, Nigel, what about you? Speaking of things that just started, I just started a game called Firewatch, uh, which I'm told had a bunch of buzz, but I'm seemingly immune to buzz <laughs> and I missed out <laughs> on it. So I just came across it. Uh, I can't remember. I think it was, I was watching something about uh, narratives in video games and came across this. So I got it on Steam, started it, and I'll probably come back to it as I play more over time. But I just wanted to mention it because it, it starts quite interestingly 
So it's from a first person perspective and you play a guy who is, I, I don't know what the, the actual job role is, but watching out for fires in uh, a national forest and you interact with the the other character who is your supervisor through walkie talkie, which I thought was quite interesting. But the way this game starts is like it gives you a series of sort of text prompts that fills in the story, but also lets you pick the direction. And it's quite sad because it it basically it tells you the story. And this is literally how the game starts. I'm not spoiling anything necessarily, but it tells you about the you meeting um, essentially your your partner at a bar, I believe, and then you get to choose different bits. So it's like you meet, um, you spot this person. It gets it lets you pick how you interact with them to approach them. You become sort of uh, girlfriend boyfriend. You move in. You get a dog. It's like gives you a choice of what name or what type of dog and what name. And then it gets quite sad. Uh, and I'll I'll leave that bit for anyone who who would want to play it. But it gets quite yeah, it gets quite <laughs> emotional in terms of just like how this game lays out the backstory for this character. And then it puts you into this situation. So. I thought it was quite an interesting start to this story where you come in from the start and it's quite emotionally charged. There's a lot of things I'm thinking about <laughs> as I start this game, which is about keeping watch on fires in a national forest. Something I never thought I'd have an interest in, but quite keen to see how they deal with this story and, and particularly how they weave the the gameplay how it serves the story that they've set up and the backstory for this character which was again i say is pretty uh yeah takes a turn takes a turn so yeah that's literally all i can say about the game because I've, I've just started it so interesting the other thing is i finished mr robot season two and because it's season two uh again i don't want to spoil anything but this is a show this is like this is that kind of show you know, you've got shows where you can you can kind of turn them on and do something else. This is not that show. You need to pay attention to everything that is happening in this show uh, and then think about it. <laughs> think about what it means, what it means for the show, what it might mean for your life. <laughs> this is, uh, yeah, this is very much a show that requires your attention. It's, it's really good. So I brought this up uh, on the podcast before because it's the story about uh, essentially this uh, hacker, uh, Elliot who suffers from, I don't, I don't know if the show explicitly states his condition, but it's definitely anxiety. <laughs> so it's a lot of that in there. And yeah, he's been recruited. He works as a, uh, in a cybersecurity firm for this massive, well, the firm is small, but the firm provides security for this massive conglomerate, uh, E-Corp. But so that's Elliot's day job. Um, and then by night, he's this hacker. He gets recruited into an anarchist um, hacking group that wants to bring down the corporation, E Corp. And season one is about sort of that journey and what happens at the end of that. And then his, like Elliot's condition, is central to the story. So, him as a character and the things that happen is very central. And the way they kind of present it is, is, like I say, you need to pay attention. But what I was keen to see in season two is that it's one of those, and I'm sort of purposely dancing around what, what the actual thing is, but it's one of those things where, you know, once you reveal it, you can't do it again, where it uses a, a mechanic 
where once you reveal it, you can't do it again. Or so I thought. <laughs> so as I was watching season two, I'm like, okay, so you can't do what you did in season one. How are you going to make this interesting? Uh, and they just shut me up. They're just like, shut up. You don't know what you're talking about. We know what we're doing. <laughs> just just sit down, shut up and watch the show. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm very impressed with how they sort of created more drama from Elliot's condition. Uh, I think uh, that's as cryptic as I can <laughs> as I can get it. But um, And then just the nature of the story as well, because it, it talks about global corporations, the, the power they have, uh, this small band of, of people that are trying to bring that down, uh, the repercussions. It's in a weird way. It gives me, like sometimes when I watch things, I'll think about the stories that I'm, I'm writing. And um, for one of the stories, Hot Lunch, which is nothing like the story here, but in terms of a small band of vigilantes, uh, I guess that are looking to bring down a sort of dominant corporation. Yeah, giving me some thoughts. And it's, it's interesting, interesting to see some of the ideas I had for the, the volume two of Hot Lunch. I kind of, I can see them in here. So it's one of those things where there's no completely original ideas, but mm. a completely different scenario. Uh, so... Uh, you won't necessarily recognize anything but yeah i was just like oh yeah i was thinking of doing something like that so now i'm taking notes and seeing how they did it and how i can make use of those techniques in uh, in the stories that i'm writing nice yeah so yeah I, I highly recommend this show yeah really enjoying it so so far um yeah now i'm just gonna watch season three and not question anything because <laughs> they know what they clearly know what they're doing so uh cool so yeah so those are the stories that we have been enjoying uh, now we're going to get to our main story discussion. And today we're going to be talking about Minority Report, which is a 2002 sci-fi action story directed by Steven Spielberg, which I actually forgot, and starring Tom Cruise. How can you forget Tom Cruise? It's based on The, Minor the Minority Report, a 1956 novella written by Philip K. Dick. So spoiler alert, we're going to be talking about uh, all aspects of this story. Uh, yes, it's 2002, but spoiler alert nonetheless. I'll do a recap of the story um, because uh, admittedly 18 years ago, you might have forgot what happens. But before I do that, we will get a quick overall impressions from each person. So Gary, what did you think of this, uh, of the story? Had you seen it at the time or... Is it something that you've watched recently? I actually, um, I think I did see it like back in the early 2000s, uh, maybe not in 2002, but sometime in the early 2000s. But I, I wasn't paying full attention to it back then because I, I didn't remember a lot of it. So, so I think like maybe my mind back then couldn't really grasp the concepts um, as good as I can now kind of thing. So, yeah, it was really refreshing to to kind of watch this again and, you know, kind of reanalyze everything. And I think it's a, a really good, well-paced sci-fi mystery um, that kind of takes the time to develop the core story themes. Um, like, because a lot of movies like this are like 90 minutes or two hours or something. And this is a bit, a bit longer than that. And Yeah, two and a half hours. Yeah, and I kind of appreciate that because it, it actually takes the time to, to build up to the, the big moments. Um, and like by the time 
the part comes where it's like the main character is is like he's been trying to f- figure out what actually happens there's like a big moment that it builds up to and by the time it gets there you know i was kind of like on the edge of my seat i was like wow like what's going to happen so mm. i i think that the amount of time they took to to kind of build up to that is what makes it so special tazzy what did you think and had you watched it before i, I can't remember if you had or not no, I'd never seen this film before. I mean, I definitely didn't watch it in 2002. Yeah. Because I would have been. I feel like I, was too, uh, I would have been too young to watch it. But yeah, so this was the first time I watched it. Uh, and I, I thought I was going to hate this film. I want to like put that out there because of the idea of war crime. Just I was just disgusted at that. <laughs> in general um but i really liked it i really liked how everything kind of unfolded and because it kind of does the work backwards thing but kind of not at the same time when you say work backwards as a as like the story works backwards yeah so they kind of give you an outcome and oh okay and work back but they're not work they're working for forward like yeah either way i just like how that works because i i do enjoy when you're given like here's what's going to happen and then here's how we get to that point but with this it's like here's what's going to happen here's what we get to this point how we get to this point and also this isn't necessarily what actually happens <laughs> by the way so i really enjoyed that about it and i enjoyed that there didn't seem to be that long spent on the idea of thought crime being a thing to judge people on. It sort of moved on quickly from that. And I was like, okay, uh, we're sort of changing our minds very quickly. And I was like, okay, cool. It's not like most of the time is spent thinking that this is okay. Yeah, it definitely, it, the film challenges that premise like very quickly. So I, I did watch it at the time. I think I... I feel like I, it was because it was around that time where we were all migrating to DVD from just uh, standard definition. So it was just everything that was being sold as a DVD. I feel like I had it on DVD. It was like that and like The Matrix, one of my first ones. And uh, I thought of it recently because I think the story is is quite relevant still uh, to today. Um, it's probably a bad thing, but uh, it's still quite relevant. But then I also remembered like, I'm sure this was a good film. And I watched it, and this is a good film. Like it's a, it's a good, like Gary said, it's, it's well, well paced. They take the time to lay out the the elements that you need uh, for the film, and then they they hit the sort of plot points. It seems to, because it's it's Spielberg, so it's a it's a spectacle. Uh, it is definitely that, but it also hits the the human moments, and it gets the two quite nicely. So, yeah, I was. I was um, yeah, I feel like this is a pretty good film. It's like, and then, like I said, the themes kind of hold up. I feel like Tom Cruise. I haven't seen everything Tom Cruise has done, but I feel like he's got a pretty good record. Like, he doesn't make. Is there like a, a like a bad Tom Cruise film? Maybe there is. I'm I'm sure there is, but. I mean, he's made. He's done a lot of films, so I feel like it's easy to have a lot of good films when fair, you do a fair lot. Point. <laughs> that's that's fair point. Yeah, I'm just yeah thinking of like I never. I mean, yeah, Tom Cruise just feels like he's ever-present. But I'm just like, yeah, Tom Cruise does well in this film. I feel uh, he does well. The film uh, is good. Yeah, I'm like, it's a pretty good film. 
feels like uh feels like I've been watching Tom Cruise for like thirty years now because I, I remember that the first film I saw him in was um Top Gun and that was like early nineties or something. Yeah. Um, and he he always looks the same as well. That's I was just going to say, like, <laughs> I was like, hold on, this was because I, I had to check like the date on this film. So like, whoa, he was, and I think he was around forty or hitting forty on this film. Yeah, it looks like, like same he doesn't energy. age. Yeah, uh, I'm sure there's a story behind that. But uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm wondering what the um, oldest, like the oldest film of him that I've seen. Yeah, like look at look at his portfolio. Like it's. Yeah, making films for a long time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I mean, yeah, there's people who also making films for a long time and and don't have the the resume that he has to to give him credit. So, but Minority Report, uh, before we get go down the Tom Cruise uh, rabbit hole. So I'll, yeah, recap the story and then we'll do that deep dive. So this is a story that takes us to 2054, where the US government is planning a national rollout of the pre-crime police department. The system prevents murders through three clairvoyant humans known as precogs. Almost all premeditated murder has been stopped, though crimes of passion are still problematic as police have limited time to intercept the killer. While Justice Department agent Danny Whitwer audits pre-crime, the pre-crocs predict that Leo Crow will be murdered by the program's captain, John Anderton. Anderton flees as Whitwer begins a manhunt. Anderton finds Dr. Iris Hyman, the creator of the pre-crime technology, who reveals that sometimes one of the pre-crocs has a different vision than the other two a minority report of a possible alternate future. So Anderton, now with a new set of eyes, returns to pre-crime and kidnaps Agatha, one of the precogs effectively shutting down the system. Anderton and Agatha find Leo Crow in his hotel room, along with several photos of children, including Anderson's disappeared son, Sean. This leads Anderton to accuse him of being a serial child killer, but Crow reveals he has been hired to plant the photos and causes his own death. While Agatha and Anderton don't find a minority report for Crow, Agatha does show him the murder of Anne Lively, Agatha's mother who was drowned by a hooded figure five years ago. Separately, Whitwer examines footage of Lively's murder and finds there were two attempts on her life. The first having been stopped by pre-crime, but the second occurring minutes later having succeeded. Whitwer reports this to director and founder of pre-crime, Lamar Burgess, who kills Whitwer shortly after, but that murder is undetected due to the precogs being offline. John Anderton is eventually captured and imprisoned for murder. However, Burgess accidentally reveals himself as Lively's murderer to John's wife, Lara. She frees her husband, who then exposes Burgess by playing the full video of Agatha's minority report. Burgess admits that pre-crime could not function without Agatha. He killed Lively following the actual attempt on her life that he had arranged, knowing that the murder would appear as an echo within pre-crime and be ignored. A new pre-crime report is generated that indicates Burgess will kill Anderton. Anderton points out Burgess's dilemma. Killing Anderton will validate pre-crime, sparing Anderton will discredit and shut down the program, and that people, regardless of the system, can change their future once they become aware of it. Burgess then commits suicide. Afterwards, the pre-crime unit is shut down. 
all the prisoners are pardoned and released and the precogs are sent away to an undisclosed location to live their lives in peace. The end. So the first thing I wanted to mention on this is just the way that technology is discussed, especially looking at this like 18, 19 years after it was released. And this is a film very much about technology and I say it's still relevant today because in some ways it's kind of predicted uh, a lot of what we're kind of seeing and still to see uh, today. So uh, what do you think about the the depiction of technology uh, in this film, uh, Gary? And yeah, looking at it now. Yeah, so um, at the time the movie came out, um, I'm pretty sure a lot of uh, the technology that was shown in this film seemed like very far out and everything um mm. but it was closer now yeah looking at it with today's eyes it's like a lot of this technology is already here but it's just in smaller iterations kind of thing so like for for instance um like the adverts that display as uh john is walking through the mall or wherever um and and they're they're like personalized ads that you know they say his name and everything uh, we see that now on the internet, like all the ads we see are kind of tailored to us um, and they know what our interests are and everything and what we're likely to to want to buy. So um, I feel like a lot of um, the stuff that's in this movie is, you know, um, even like the self-driving cars, like I feel like within the next five to six years, that's going to be a more common thing. Yeah. Uh, we, we know that they're already in development as we speak, so... So yeah, it seems like a lot of the themes of, of the technology that, that are in Minority Report are things that are actually here now, but just not as big as, uh, not on a larger scale as, as what we see in the movie. And because it's set in 2054, like a lot of films you sort of look back on and you're like, that's just nowhere near the trajectory we're on. But this is like... No, yeah, I feel like you're pretty much on the same timeline still, maybe like a little bit, just slightly too soon, but only but like a few years. Mm. <laughs> Whereas like normally you're like, yeah, that's just nothing. We're not, we don't have floating cars. It's overly ambitious, but this feels about right. It very much like, oh no, yeah, I can see this <laughs> being a thing. It it um it doesn't it goes far out but it doesn't go too far out that we don't recognise elements of it, which yeah that's a really good point and yeah I think for like for films whenever technology is brought in it can sometimes it can sometimes take you out especially when you're looking at it back because it's like oh we don't have that so if you watch a film and it, and it you know they go on a search engine and it's Yahoo immediately you're like oh, oh we don't use Yahoo we haven't used that for for time but I think what this has done is it it's not focused on like the technology itself, but how technology has changed society. And I read that uh, Spielberg brought in a bunch of experts, so from architects, authors, uh, urbanists, journalists, computer science, and people in biomedicine to think about and imagine a plausible futuristic society. And that society is key. So it, it we see that it looks at how things have changed so when we see like gary mentioned the the ads we see what effect that has on society so as like john is walking uh, in spaces he gets you know the personalized call out which is I've, i 
got to imagine that's actually pretty annoying in practice because then as multiple people walk, you get multiple audio cues. I just, that's got to be annoying. But uh, even like self, um, self-driving cars, um, we kind of see that. And then the the eye scanners as well. So as people get on trains, everyone's getting their eye scan and specifically the eyes and not the face. It's like the eyes. Mm-hmm. So yeah, when you see it now, it's like, oh, we've, you know, we've got very personalized ads. Self-driving cars are are here. There's some, you know, been deployed. If you have a Tesla, there's some level of sort of automation in there. Um, companies like uh, Waymo, who I think Google own, are testing like self-driving cars. We know like Uber are going in that direction um, in terms of replacing drivers with self-driving cars because uh, that just works for their business model. So it's like things that we we can already see, <laughs> like you can use this as a marker almost, like we can see where this is going. So I thought that was a really cool thing. So it, it just meant that as you come to watch it and sort of me watching it around about the time and then watching it now, it still feels relevant. Like it doesn't feel like I'm watching something that's dated. Although I don't think we've got those uh, those gloves and that, you know, those that interface when he was moving things around. Yeah. I don't think we've got that. Do we have that? Have I missed that? I don't think we have that, but I do feel like that's like that could come out like tomorrow or something. Yeah, because it's <laughs> yeah. kind of like it's kind of like an AR, like um, alternate reality or slash VR type thing. Um, and they're already they're already doing similar things with VR at the moment. So yeah, but I'm sure like some AR stuff has been like working on. Well, not even with gloves, just with your hands. Yeah, I, like yeah. you interact with the AR. With that's a like just with camera true i'm sure there's a thing i know google had a project google glass where you put like a, a visor on and then it projects and uh like ar display and uh that kind of thing so yeah i was, I was probably here so everything's here <laughs> it's, it's here it's been worked on so yeah it's quite uh predictive in that way and the other thing that you know you do get when you're looking back uh, at films especially sci-fi films that rely on visual effects is kind of how well does this stack up to today's standard that's my question how well do you think this stacks up to today's standard were you i mean like say it's 18 you know years ago but did you feel that the visuals kind of held up did it take you out uh, at any point I, i really liked um the stylistic choice they took with the the visuals with like uh how they kind of muted uh some colors but like at the same time, the technology kind of popped a little bit. I kind of like that. And it kind of feeds into the the noir element of the story because it does give me like a very noir um, sort of story vibe uh, with like the mystery elements and, and things of that nature. So I kind of like it. At first, I, it did burn me off a little bit. It looked a little odd. Yeah, me too. To see it like, but... As as it went on, I kind of, you know, got more used to it. And um, I just took it as like a stylistic choice that makes sense for, for, for the story they're telling. Yeah, I I was like that as well. It kind of taken out. I think just it was just part of it was an, an old film. So you're kind of measuring sort of the standard of, of visual effects to, I don't know, like Avengers <laughs> Endgame and kind of, yeah. uh, this doesn't look like that. But once you get past that, the thing that kind of struck me and I don't know how aware I was of this at the time, but the purposeful and distinct visual style. So like you say, the sort of muted color. And then I don't know if it's lens flaring. I don't know if that's the, the term, but there was a lot of that in there. 
Uh, so I was like, I was just curious as to that. And I think you touched on it, Gary, the film noir look. So I read that the sort of film is is overlit on purpose. So colour is then reduced by as much as 40% and production design relying on uh, colourless chrome and circular glass objects, which uh, as it, this where I get this from, Cinephilia and Beyond says that uh, provides the dominant shadows needed for the desired futuristic noir look. So it's that kind of future, but noir. It took a, a moment for me just to adjust to what I was uh, seeing, but then I was kind of, okay, this this fits the themes um, and the story that they're trying to tell here. That is the one thing that took me out of it, is, is the muted tones, because I just kept feeling like, am I watching... What like am I watching a like a camera recording of this? I'm like, no, I'm watching it on Sky. Like this, I'm like, is my HDMI cable not plugged in properly? <laughs> it was just so distracting because it was like I found it hard to like really get into some bits because I didn't like I just couldn't match up like that. This is a stylistic choice to make it. Like, I was like, okay, you know what you're doing, but it took me out of the film quite a bit. Yeah, I just, it didn't give it a futuristic feel to me. I'd done kind of the opposite. I had a moment like that at the start where I was like, is this like the HD version or or, or is it like SD or something? Like, but I, I did have a moment like that where I questioned the quality of... of... Which moment? No, just like when I first started watching it, like the first five minutes or so, like it just, I was like, is this like the right one? Because, yeah, like it's just, it. I guess it stands out a lot like now because of what we're used to. Uh, like you said, you know, with Avengers Endgame and, and things of that quality out there, it's like, you know, seeing this, it's a bit like, wow, what, what's going on here? I think for me, it's literally just the colour. So like even just compared to another film of 2002, so you're more the, the, yeah, the specific choice rather than just the technology that was. Yeah, because I feel like other than that, it would, yeah, I was just like, okay, we'll go, yeah, I don't know. Muted tones <laughs> to me didn't say future, they say past. <laughs> yeah, I, the only thing that, well, there were a couple instances, but the one major one for me is when he escapes from the self-driving car uh, and jumps and that that for me, I don't know, my brain was like, oh no, I can see that this isn't <laughs> as good and I need you to focus on that right now. And I had to, <laughs> I was just like, let it go. But yeah, I, I thought like overall it kind of, it holds up. And I, I think just because it's, it's like we said, it's still a relevant film. You can, like if it wasn't a good film, you might focus in on that more than you do because of, you know, now I'm watching it and I'm invested in the story. So quite impressive that. So a lot of this uh, discussion is going to be on like characters and themes because what I definitely didn't pick up on uh, when I first watched is the themes. Uh, I mean, the overall themes I kind of got, but in terms of how that plays out in terms of the, the characters and the conflict between them. So the protagonist here is John Anderton, uh, played by Tom Cruise. So I mentioned that they've managed to get the the spectacle of this, but also the human element. And I think that is uh, encapsulated in John because he is the, the chief of this pre-crime unit uh, and he is a full believer in it. And he's a believer because he has lost his son and is not over that. So his his thinking is that if we had a system like this, when my son was around, it would have prevented his disappearance and presumed 
um, murder. That is him and his line of thinking until he's tagged as a future murderer, goes on a run uh, and then challenges those perceptions. But did anyone uh, have any particular favorite characters? Uh, yeah, so, I mean, John was, was like, my favorite just because, you know, he is the main protagonist and we see his story uh, fleshed out the most. But um, another character that uh, did kind of win me over as things went on was uh, Danny Whitwer, because um, at the start, it, he's kind of like a antagonist sort of character because it seems like he's directly opposing what John is doing. But what I like about the character in the end is that... Um, once he sees all of the facts, you know, once um, everything is revealed and, you know, he sees that, oh, actually, we, we might have been wrong here and we might be, you know, looking at uh, something, you know, something bigger than we thought. Uh, once he has all those facts, he kind of, um, you know, he figures things out and then he ends up uh, going directly to, you know, the, the real antagonist of the story. Um, and, you know, he, lay, he lays everything out and, uh, you know, unfortunately, he's not he in the, the movie. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I, I did like that character and uh, the, I forgot the name of the actor, Colin Farrell, right? Yeah. Yeah, he, he did a great job with, the, with this character, I think. I'm just going to say, like, Whitwell was a good character and I feel like they've done him injustice because he seems to be like a character that would be smarter than to just go alone. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> it's like this seems very out of character. Yeah, that, that was a bit of a trope. The kind of you know too much, you can't be allowed to live. <laughs> I don't know. Like other than John, oh the um, I can't remember her name. The the one that invented the technology, the lady who, the one with all the plants. Oh, uh, Heinemann. Yeah, she, she kind of steals the scene that she's in. Like, yeah, she does. She was, a really, she was a really good character. Yeah, just that, that whole character was, was just fun to watch. And it's a shame that we only got that short little bit. Yeah, actually, that was a, that's a good point. That is all she's in. I did like her. Yeah, she's quite quite character. Like you say, she does, she's a, a scene stealer. <laughs> you know what I liked about uh, Whitworth is that John is the kind of devotee to pre-crime and then he's introduced to Whitwer, who is the skeptic because they make a point of Whitwer having spent so he's religious so he's having spent things mentioned some years in divinity school before going into law enforcement and he actually carries rosary beads so it kind of goes to his character of the maybe the the former believer and now skeptic and he's introduced into the story as a very hard skeptic and questioning the premise of pre-crime but then like you say Gary he's that he's a character he's he has his view but then he does actually learn the facts and then he changes his mind in his <laughs> final moments of life but yeah so it's quite interesting how they play with those characters and their how their background kind of informs their their views today and how they kind of compete along those ideals I did like the the scene where they sort of discuss the idea of I guess the morality of, of pre-crime, we're, we're going to come on to that uh, in a bit. Um, and this is a side note as well, that I just noticed this thing about the different mediums of like books to film, where there's a trope where you kind of, you take the character uh, from a book. And in the book, I read that Anderton, who's played by Tom Cruise, is described as old, fat and bold in the short story. And 
obviously Tom Cruise is none of those things. So it kind of reminds you, and it made me think of uh, Game of Thrones, where many of the characters were just made more pretty <laughs> just by the, the actors or in certain instances where they, in the book, they're kind of more visually disfigured. Uh, I'm thinking Tyrion specifically, but in the show, it's it's less pronounced. And yeah, just a side note of like, it just interesting what we want from those different mediums. So with books, you can be more sort of descriptive in terms of less visually appealing characters. But in yeah. films, I guess this just reflects on us as a, as a society. Uh, you need to look good as <laughs> like, <that's> default. <laughs> I was just going to say uh, that is kind of a shame because um, cause I do like seeing like more, uh, you know, not just flawed, flawed as well, but like also people who are who might be less visually appealing to, to the average person's eye. Um, I feel like, you know, that gives a, a chance to kind of flesh out the, the, the character's personality more. Uh, whereas yeah. you know, in in a lot of movies, um, you could they like they can get by on just looks, like you know, just the visual appearance of the actors themselves. But uh, yeah, I would like to see you know perhaps they can do it with TV shows, uh, you know, just more like less visually attractive characters and stuff because I, I feel that adds more depth to the storytelling if 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 done right. I was pretty much going to say the same thing. Like I. I'm just so done with this need to prettify like everyone (laughs) and even down to you know like not just the fact that obviously a lot of these stars are just very good looking yeah good looking people in Hollywood there must be something in the water (laughs) but also the fact that they also then feel the need to make sure the characters are always looking like their best and like you know, let people get a bit more scruffy, and uh, not just when they've just died for a window. Maybe you know, throughout the day when they've <laughs> just doing stuff. <laughs> yeah, because no, no, like it doesn't matter how good looking you are, you're not going to look that good looking like every day, all day, every day. So exactly. As I I wonder what the reaction would be if they went out. I feel like the less pre I, I feel like the pool of like actors is always going to be pretty <laughs> so that's the hardest thing to change but the what you said has about within the story having them more scruffy or, or sort of depending on where the story goes like i mentioned Tyrion, and in the book we, he gets his nose sort of disfigured yeah but the book is like really described like a like you look at it and it's like oh whereas in the in the show, it's like a scar or something. You just continue. I think, um, what was another show? Punisher did this where in one of the seasons, a character gets disfigured and it's sort of hidden. And it was like, oh, um, I can't show this thing. And then when they show it, it's like, oh, it's, not, it's not that bad. <laughs> you were, like you could have gone further with that disfigurement. Um, so yeah, I think they can take that further. Um, but I always, I always wonder how people would uh, react to that. It's something I like appreciated in the first episode of The Nevers. There's like a fight scene and well, it's not even it's a chase scene. And, you know, the character looks visibly like they've been in a chase scene and not like they've just been like little jock, like, you know, hair's (laughs) a bit scruffy, like the clothes are like, you know, something might fall off your shoulder or whatever. Like I can't get out of a cab without... (laughs) You know, my bag hanging off in a really weird way, or you mean your hair doesn't stick all the time. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I totally get that. The 
uh we're not the here thing i don't have that problem but the um yeah just the if they're going through something let's see them go through something yeah no matter how many how pretty they start if they're going through stuff let's or if it's the end stuff. of a working day you know yeah <laughs> <laughs> just day just just the day is, is wearing on them i like that uh there's another couple characters i did want to mention in terms of like where they sit on this spectrum uh, of um, this thematic uh, spectrum. And uh, so the director, Lamar Burgess, so the co-founder and current director of Pre-Crime. So he is a, I don't know, because he's a believer, but he's a believer because he's created it and he killed someone to make sure, maintain its, uh, its relevance. So he kind of, he's a believer who go to extreme lengths. So he uh, murdered Agatha, agatha's mother when she threatened to take agatha back and so he's kind of i'll do whatever it takes to make sure that this thing uh stays so you kind of he's presented as a sort of father figure or a mentor figure to john and then it's revealed that he is the <laughs> he's the actual antagonist and then you've got agatha who's the lead precognitive and she is so i think she's the most powerful it's kind of hinted so uh, Idris Heinemann, she hints that Agatha is the most powerful of the three. So the other two are twins. And she is the one that typically has the minority report or might differ from the others. But it's also interesting to see, and this links to like um, Witwer, who, like I said, came from a religious background. So Agatha and the precogs are treated as relig religious figures. So when John takes her out, uh, well, first of all, actually, the, the place they're, they're held is called the temple, uh, and that's pointed out in the film. And then when Agatha is taken out by John and they meet uh, that guy in that sort of shady guy who, who builds John's technology, he kind of yeah. sort of bows down to Agatha as like a holy figure. So Agatha's like a deity in this in this world, and you have like believers, non-believers, things like that. Uh, yeah, it's just interesting to see how that all plays out. Um, and how it's represented in in characters because I'm kind of and this is why I definitely didn't think of it at this level when I first watched it but now as someone who's making stories just seeing how they they have a theme and then how that theme plays out uh, from different characters perspectives so yeah I thought that was an interesting point of it speaking of themes some big themes in this story so we're going to talk about some of these themes the main one free will versus determinism so this idea that once the future is known we're able to change it so we kind of discuss that touching on the idea that john is a true believer but then once it's his future predicted he kind of <laughs> he has this thing of like no i can change it like i'm i don't know this guy i'm not going to kill him i can change it but he he takes the exact steps to put him in that position and then the one i thought was interesting i, I sort of picked up along the way is this idea of like vision or sight this is where in storytelling as like gary you, i can speak to this as well where once you have a theme as a storyteller you then in a way go back and start dropping hints to that theme so i noticed that there's this, this thing about sight so we have when john who is using some form of drugs to sort of cope with the the trauma he's still feeling uh, after the loss of his son he gets whatever the drug is from a blind drug dealer in the street and he has the line of i can't remember the full line but it was like something like in the land of the blind the one-eyed man is king 
something yeah, like that's that. It. Yeah, that's it. Is that okay? Cool. Oh, memory better than I thought. Uh, <laughs> and then, then the, it's made a point of him. He, he has no eyes, <laughs> um, so that was quite an obvious thing. But even when uh, Agatha sort of first communicates with John, she has the line like, "Can you see?" And uh, Lamar uh, Burgess saying to John, "The eyes of the nation." are on us right now when they're talking about because uh, the situation is like pre-crime is localized but they're talking about passing a bill that would nationalize it so sort of the eyes of the nation are on us uh, and then uh, john gets his eyes swapped out in the mid around the midpoint of the film to sort of evade detection and i mentioned uh, already but the idea of like uh, eye scanning so everyone's eyes and not their face specifically their eyes are scanned everywhere in society i feel like have i missed anything out is that all the eye references uh that's all the ones i remember i think yeah, yeah. so is this there once you have that theme and and then this overall theme of which i thought was quite interesting and like tell me what you think but this idea of people not seeing the whole picture so again like seeing so what you've got with pre-crime is and you see at the beginning where they have a vision, they don't have all the information, but part of John's role is to figure out where this murder is going to take place. So you're given information, you're piecing it together to build a narrative to then in that case help you solve the crime. But then there's this whole thing over the film about like not having all the information, not seeing everything, but building a narrative around what you do have. Uh, there was another example, well, I, I guess with the, the murder of... Um, Agatha's mother is another example of that where we we get pieces and we don't know what it is and we build in a narrative and we find that the narrative is not what we thought so I thought that was that was an interesting kind of thing I don't know if anyone sort of thought uh saw that as they were watching it, it wasn't like it wasn't something that um I because I was just kind of going along with the story but um yeah. after like in retrospect after you know watching it and everything that is something you know I kind of pick up on and and think over it a little bit and um because the movie is so fresh in my mind i actually want to uh to uh go and read and and watch some of the theories out there on the movies because i know that for deep stories like this there's usually a lot of like there's usually like a rabbit hole of like different theories and things so i i really want to see what other people are taking from it um while we're talking about themes because you kind of quickly went over it um the like free will versus choice because you said that it was once the future is known but i don't feel like the film was saying that's the case i just feel like it was questioning whether you could determine your own future once there was someone who did see their own rather than it being a case of if you know what's going to happen you can change it oh i, I see feel like it was just saying no you can change it regardless of if you know or not uh, it can be changed. It's not predetermined because it also had the case that, you know, the uh, that they don't always agree. Like sometimes one of the... Oh, the precogs. Precogs will see a different future. Yes. So that's like, that's already questioning whether there is an element of choice uh, rather than it just being because you've seen your future. Right, I see you. Yeah, it's not like a, a causal thing. It's not like... It's not only when you know you can change it, but yeah, I get what you're saying. It's kind yeah. of like just saying that, yeah, they see the future and it might be, you know, pretty accurate most of the time, but not necessarily. Yeah, it's not 100%, even though 
they make a point of people saying like the system is perfect <laughs> yeah it's like nope it's flawed yeah <laughs> um, and i think even to the point of when john is uh, faced with who he thinks is the killer of his son and we have agatha saying like you you can still choose you can still choose constantly and then him himself seems like he's not sure if he has a choice uh until the time is up and it's hit that minute of when he would have killed him and he he hasn't and he's like oh yeah <laughs> so it's like oh i didn't kill him like well yeah because you chose not to i like how they set that up as well because from the first vision from the uh, opening sort of scene of the film we see a murder and then as we see them stop it we see him use his watch to like time mm-hmm. the exact time where this is going to happen and it's, that's kind of brought back in uh, later when it's him being the kind of the suspect i guess well not even a suspect because they by that point it's like you are going to do it or at least that's the thinking <laughs> they use they use like um timers quite a lot in the film yeah i, I like that as well and the other kind of thing i i notice is because we talked about technology and the just abundance of advanced technology in this film but there are moments where they break away from that into nature and the kind of nature is an escape so hyman uh, iris hyman she's kind of away in a secluded cottage in the woods in these weird kind of animated plants which you don't necessarily explain i just assume that's a thing in the future um and kind of uh, explain it because she she's a she like experiments on them and what's it called when you cross oh cross pollinate yeah like mess, she messes with the genes that's the whole thing of how she did i just completely miss that yeah yeah the i keep forgetting, the precogs word yeah. became was her oh yeah she does yeah she does right i just that skipped my mind <laughs> <laughs> yeah i couldn't remember like did they explain did they touch on the plants and why they were all yeah yeah you're right yeah she's kind of away in nature but even when uh who goes to see john's wife is it whitwell whitwell Whit- whitwell yeah it's a weird name to say by the way but <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, yeah so she is again secluded and i think um the other one was with the the precog so when they are set free they're also again secluded uh, sort of by the lake uh around nature so it's like nature is used as an escape from this lack of freedom environment that the rest of society is in and you see those moments where they kind of break out uh into into nature yeah and i think that theme in particular is very relevant to today because uh you know like at the moment we're in like a tech overload and what i noticed is that like when i was younger because i've i've been like really into tech since like the 90s like you know, um, I taught myself how to use computers and everything. And then, like, you know, I was always, like, the, the tech guy in the family um, and everything. But, like, nowadays, I feel like my relationship with tech is changing. And I'm, I'm kind of, like, wanting to get away from it a bit more. Like, especially, like, my phone and stuff. So I think oh, what, yeah. what what this shows is, Good like... with that, by the way. <laughs> yes, it's not easy. It's not easy. <laughs> but, yeah, like, I think what this is showing is... Um, like you know it, tech is going to take over our lives just because it's it's such a convenient thing for us but at the same time you also have to kind of bring yourself back to the roots of humanity as well 
um, just to kind of experience, you know, what what life really is without, you know, all the technology. Um, and I think that's very important, especially for young people nowadays, just to, you know, understand what uh, life is like without, you know, the influence of technology. <laughs> I totally agree. Again, good luck with that to to all of us. But <laughs> yeah, it's... That is important. I think especially after the sort of this sort of pandemic, this 15 months that it's been where we've had almost no choice but to be entertained or to connect through technology. But it's, it is an overload. And it's been weird for me because I, I sort of, know, you kind of know there's a problem, but then when it's the only option, <laughs> you, you willingly just go into it and there's more like screen time shoots through the roof you're checking things on social media even though you don't necessarily want to and it's like oh wow we have to yeah how do we how do we break away from that now we've got you know out more outside options how do we break away from that and keep that balance before yeah we become uh, i'm sure this is a phrase that's been used in many dystopian sci-fis but a slave to our technology um so yeah public service announcement there uh does anyone have any favorite moments or scenes from this it's my favorite question of asking for favorites from people uh so yeah mine would be uh pretty much the crime scene or like when uh john adderton is meant to commit the murder and you know uh the, the guy is actually pretending to be the person who uh you know killed his son i i love that scene because there's so much going on there but um, ultimately, like this is like the peak of John's character growth because, um, like we mentioned before, he goes from at the the start of the movie, you know, he believes in this technology and he believes that, um, you know, once uh, the future is known, you can't change it, and um, the murders they're seeing, like the person is going to murder, you know, the victim no matter what. Um, so he goes from believing that to then becoming the person who is going to murder someone and then mm -hmm. being able to change it. So that is like the, you know, the biggest moment of growth for, for his character. And, you know, the, the moment that kind of brings us into the final act, I guess. Um, mm -hmm. So, yeah, that was just the peak for me of like, you know, the, the overall story that I was telling and, and all the elements they were building up beforehand. Um, and then we, we do still get like some nice twists after that scene as well. Um, but yeah, that moment for me was just the peak. By the way, actually, uh, another thing I uh, just wanted to drop this in there. Uh, what did people think of the the spiders? The little spider bots. Yeah, that was terrifying for me. I was like, that is so invasive. Like, yeah. <laughs> they're, they're showing all the different like, like, I guess households and there's like the woman with the two kids and one of them's like I'm scared I'm yeah. scared and she's just like do it. Just, just, open just, your just eyes and... open your eyes and then there's like the couple that are in the middle of having sex <laughs> and like they're just like really oh and then there's like a couple there's like someone arguing and they just stop arguing get their eye scan and just carry on arguing and I was like okay like it was such a weird scene to watch because it was like this is so 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 invasive like just imagine like not to mention that i can totally like understand the little kid being i'm scared like these random little creepy robots just like run in and they're so like spidery i guess <laughs> they're just like running along and they're a bit 
the alien. I imagine it's not something that happens very regularly. <laughs> mm. I mean, the design, I mean, it depends how you feel about spiders. Uh, I'm not a big fan myself, but it was more just how invasive. It's just like, oh yeah, we do this. Mm. But then, you know what? If you if you had told us like a year ago that uh, we we're going to be forced to stay in our homes, we, we would have said that was crazy too. I don't know. <laughs> also, the thing that made me think it's a bit crazy is like how unreliable of a source of information it was <laughs> yeah that's true it did it did not achieve the, it's the so effective it and like there's no like they're they're just i was like this is a flawed anyway if you're going to just send some little robots in to like use your eyes people and not not their eyes like use your actual your eyes, eyes yeah. to think whether someone is someone rather than just a retinal scan when you've already when it's already known that i mean it might cost money but you can change your eyes like Imagine how, uh, imagine how effective it would have been if those uh, spiders had a camera. Yeah, <laughs> like it's kind of the idea of like the over, like the over reliance on a specific technology. Yeah, and I'm like, I can't rely on my mic to work. Come on. <laughs> uh, <well>. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think mean, that that's a really good point you bring up. That yeah, just uh, it doesn't it doesn't bleep it doesn't beat police work and like going in and do, doing the actual work and checking if if you're going to be invasive like that and uh, and go in and do it properly for, for someone that's already like someone who's from the inside that has the knowledge of your mm. tech like it just yeah i was like well you don't deserve to catch him <laughs> like I, I was thinking of the logistics of that as well like so do these people have to give consent to like you know um for the police force to be able to carry out searches like this like because it seems seems like a huge invasion of privacy and like i'm pretty sure somebody would complain or there would be some sort of legal um cause for people to you know to oppose this i feel like society at this point from what we've seen there is no such thing as privacy yeah because yeah. <laughs> even when people get on the train just everyone's getting the eye scan like routine so it's obviously there have been some there's some point at which everyone just like gave up on privacy which itself is <laughs> quite scary as well yeah yeah very scary tazzy did you have any other sort of standout moments oh god i had one and i forgot it uh the scene where john and agatha is it when they're leaving the tech person's place and they're going through the like shopping center or whatever and yep. agatha's like umbrella yeah, take the umbrella yeah. take the umbrella that man's gonna drop his case and he says to like the woman don't go home he knows yeah the one that got me was the drop him some change very oh, yeah, specifically drop it and he's just like well you're not even gonna put it in my hand and i was like yeah that was a bit what what and then you're like oh okay that's why <laughs> yeah that was funny there's um there's a term I've seen in screenwriting that like a period of the film called fun and games where you kind of like explore things around a the theme or have fun with it. And I feel that was definitely in that segment where we've got the, the person who can predict the future. Uh, let's have some fun with it. And then like the, you see like the, the party balloon just come and block their view. Uh, I did, <laughs> did enjoy that. And actually one other thought I did have is just the, the parallel between the opening scene of Minority Report and the opening scene of X-Men Days of Future Past, which we covered on a recent episode. So in 
Minority Report, you see this affair that's taking place and the murder when the husband catches his wife having an affair and a vision of the future, which the story's characters are trying to prevent. And there's uh, a similar thing in X-Men Days of Future Past, similar kind of themes in the story where it shows you a future where Sentinels erase mutant kind and then they go back in time to try and uh, stop that. So yeah, just something I noticed as I was watching. All right, so I wanted to save this to the end and uh, just a final thought kind of thing and uh, uh, a question. I'm going to direct it to, to Tazzy and I'm going to start with a leading question, an intentionally leading question. Uh, is is pre-crime good? Does it work? Do we need to punish thoughts and, and not just actions? The floor is yours. No. <laughs> <laughs> the idea of punishing thoughts is like just uh, it makes zero sense because like the human brain a has continuous thoughts like non-stop we have several different thoughts and we then fixate on a very like a few of those thoughts and make them then conscious thought <laughs> and then even of those conscious thought we then select which ones are valid like yeah, to be fair, to play devil's advocate, this isn't just thought. This is things that people will do. And there's also, because there's even a scene when when John takes Agatha to the, the tech guy, I forgot his actual name, but the, the tech guy's kind of hideout place. And there's a guy who comes in, he's like, I want to, I want to kill my boss because the place is like where people live out fantasies. Yeah. So he's like, I want to kill my boss. So he's thinking it, but he's not he's not gonna do it because if he did, he'd be arrested. So yeah, it's not exactly thought. It's the people who will commit this if nothing happens. But there's like com like cause even so the pre pre determined like pre what's it called when you pre plan a crime? Um premeditated. Premeditated crime like drops, right? due yeah. to this yeah the stats are there so then it means um the crime is like all pa passion crime basically most of the crimes committed keyword here being passion which can very much change in an instant and the the crimes like it's like they have a very short window to get to someone and it also means that that person's not in a rational state like, which is something we take into account when we are, like, judging someone on a crime, is that, you know, there's all these chemicals that rush into the brain. Like, pre-crime would be great as a crime prevention thing, where then you get to the person that's about to commit the crime and help them, <laughs> because they're not in a state. The amount of, like, snap changes I make... I'm like, I'd definitely be arrested. I would have been arrested, like, as a teenager. How, this this clearly can't work on teenagers as well, because irrational thought is, like, their whole thing. It's, yeah. like, it's like the existence. And it's like, I mean, it even sort of touches on on the film uh, where John's in that moment where he does have the gun, he can't make a choice, uh, and he chooses not to. But that is how quickly you can change your mind. And as someone that also, like, had serious anger issues at one point, like, I'm sure you my... 
basically. Yeah, is what my brain would like trigger off that you know I'm gonna, but I choose not to. Like that is my choice, and ultimately, it's what. Like if if pre pre crime was a thing, then it would mean that we have chosen that we have we have come to the conclusion that humans have no choice that there is a predetermined path that we are all following and, that's and so like, yeah so if you want to reserve to that thinking uh then i don't know yes. <laughs> what do you think gary yeah I, I completely agree um i think you know having this uh pre-crime you know machine uh, or process would eliminate like all nuance of uh human thinking and you know like tazzy said like you can have like your emotions could build up and um you in in like a split second you could you know want to do something but then change your mind like in in less than a blink of an eye like you could just you know switch up and 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 think what what am i doing i'm not gonna do this yeah. kind of thing so but that guy was gonna kill his wife was... we don't know though he didn't leave much space to change. Yeah, but change that's how quickly you can change your mind. Like until yeah. that is, he didn't even make a movement at that point. He was still like he was thinking about it. I mean, even the because I like really paid attention to that scene, um, and she didn't think he was going to do it because she's screaming after him as well. So. And he didn't think he was going to do it then. He was like, he was like, I wasn't going to do it. He could have literally just thought, <laughs> I don't want to kill my wife. But we saw it. We saw it. And that's what, yeah. No, I, I agree. I've kind of seen different Which was not it at all. <laughs> I'm glad that they prevented it from happening, the possibility of it happening. But the fact that he then went into like this halo thing again. Oh, <laughs> That's questionable. The meaning that I was like, let me not go into it. But so not only are you prosecuting someone on a crime they haven't committed, but you're also sentencing them to permanently, like, in a forced coma to be part of a machine. Like they don't even just go to prison. Like that's even worse. Like what? <laughs> <laughs> they didn't even get a chance to like li- like redeem themselves and live up. <sighs> <laughs> like Tazzy was saying, I think it would be far more effective to offer them like mental health uh, solutions and things like that, like mm. support, basically. Yeah. Instead of prosecuting them because they didn't actually commit the crime at that point. Um, and also, like, I, I feel like this technology would go haywire. Like, that, like so many people have so many different thoughts, like, all day long. Like, uh, this, like, there would be so many balls dropping from, like, the machine yeah. or whatever. <laughs> do, like, they, do they have enough balls? That's what I was thinking as well. Because like, there's a lot of, <laughs> a lot of murder around. Murder Did anyone thoughts. get, like, a, a lottery? Yeah. <laughs> actually, I don't know, some, like, some very dystopian lottery. <laughs> <laughs> that's a good point i did <laughs> did have that feel yeah no i i i was thinking about it as a premise for the film i was like oh, okay that'll be interesting how that would play out but the more i thought about it i was like oh this is unsettling just that being in that place where yeah just your sort of thoughts future actions potential one possible future action is like gary says no nuance no context 
And back to my point earlier about not seeing the whole picture, you get none of that. You get your kind of sentence based off the information that we have that look it just it just feels wrong. And I also feel isn't the sort of place for that discussion, partly because I'm not the one to have it, but I feel on some level, uh, and I wish I knew some kind of, I don't know, philosopher or something, like crime or disorder is needed for society. And I can't, I can't explain it more. I might have to go to a, some out of the way place in nature and think about this. But I feel like we need crime for society to function. If that triggers anything in anyone, anyone listening, let me know. There's a, there's a thought there. There may be a book, something. But I feel like we, you need to have disorder in a society. Otherwise, we're just numbers. We're just, yeah, just something fundamentally wrong uh, about that whole premise of, uh, of pre-crime. Uh, I just don't have the vocabulary or <laughs> or uh, or education to discuss it in any more detail. But I just put it out there. So you, you can't you can't have order without disorder. Yeah, there you go. Something like that. Yeah, Gary gets it. So yeah, that is uh, our discussion on all things pre-crime minority report. If you want to riff off that kind of philosophical argument put forward, uh, feel free. Give us your feedback, questions. Uh, you know where to find us, feedback at myameda.com. Uh, before we wrap, we're going to go into the storytelling tip for this week. Each time we do a deep dive on a podcast, I like to pull out a storytelling tip uh, for others to consider when making their own stories. So this is a consideration from someone who also creates stories and likes to learn from the techniques or mistakes of others and for today's episode i wanted to uh, discuss the idea of exposition through conflict and characters so exposition is something that's come up on the show before and it's a generally an aspect of storytelling that can be difficult to do well so it's something that is really important to the world presented to us in minority report which is set in a future United States and revolves around a pre-crime system that we have no prior knowledge of as the audience. So when we create stories, whether they're set in a world based in reality or completely made up locations, it's important to establish the story world. This means the environment your story takes place in with all the relevant rules and systems. So doing this will let the audience know what they're in for and what to expect for the story to come. It's a key step because we're asking the audience to suspend any disbelief and buy into our world so they can connect to the story we're about to tell them. And it does require a fair amount of exposition. And exposition in storytelling, it is a necessary tool and it's there to provide background information that would allow your audience to become familiar with the story world. It does get a bad reputation often, but this is only because it's those moments when it's done badly that you then notice it. Uh, I've brought it up on occasion when referencing uh, manga and anime, just because I feel sometimes it's a medium that gets away with bad exposition. Uh, so I see this in like the uh, the dreaded info dump, so overly long explanations or forced character monologues that provide answers to questions no one has asked or even oftentimes care about. This is an example of bad exposition. So it's a transparent attempt to tell the audience information that you, the storyteller, wants them to know. 
not what makes sense in the story. Good exposition occurs when your audience is informed without them noticing. So I felt Minority Report handles exposition pretty well. So for example, we see advertising in the streets to explain the position of pre-crime from a political perspective uh, ahead of its potential nationwide rollout. Uh, there's a moment where we see a tour guide explain the law behind pre-crime to a group, uh, which we also get to hear and take in. Uh, this is actually reminded me of something I was uh, thinking of doing in the 11th hour, uh, the My Matter Story 11th hour, where uh, I wanted to explain the history of the megacity Tempura, where that story takes place, uh, and using a tour guide to explain some aspects of it. Uh, Minority Report also makes use of the tried and tested vehicle for exposition, which is the character who knows as little about the story world as we do. This is Agent Witwa, who is seeing the pre-crime system for the first time and has lots of questions as we, the audience, uh, have questions. But what the film does is not just introduce him as an empty vessel asking basic questions, they link his role in the story to conflict, specifically conflict with our protagonist. So when Witwa hasn't um, just come to audit pre-crime, he has come sceptical and has questions about the entire premise and is seen as a threat by John Anderton, who is fully bought in when we first meet and when they first meet together. So not only do we learn about pre-crime as Witwa does, but putting him at odds with Anderton makes for good dramatic viewing as the two battle thematically when they discuss a system that arrests people for crimes they haven't yet committed, which is terrible, by the way, just a bad, bad thing. Uh, so the other thing um, that I wanted to highlight on that is we also see pre-crime system that is used in, act in action as we see a future murder carried out and then prevented in the, pre in the present. So the murder at the start of the film is highly emotional and put together with the theoretical debate later on. Not only do we have uh, an understanding of the rules of the story world, but we also care emotionally what happens to the characters within it. And that's a good example of uh, exposition done well. So for people making their own stories, here are some things to think about when implementing exposition in your story. Uh, so number one starts off with building a strong story world and an understanding of that world. So regardless of what actually makes it into the final story, you as the creator should have a solid grasp of the, the mechanics, the systems, the rules of your story world. From there, it's then about what you decide goes in, what people uh, see, and then what your audience needs to know and when they need to know it. Uh, so Avatar, The Last Airbender is a good example of knowing the world and the history of it. So all the nuances of the conflict around each nation is introduced in that story when it's needed through some kind of conflict between the characters that we're invested in. Uh, number two is to link exposition to conflict and emotion. Uh, so when you're providing that essential background information, don't forget the stakes and emotional context of your story. Uh, so this tends to come through some kind of conflict between those characters uh, in the story. So we've seen this uh, through the coming together of John Anderton and Danny Witwer in Minority Report. Another example is in Captain America Civil War, where we learn about the Sokovia Accords and their impact on the future of the Avengers 
through conflict. So each member of the team has a different view and end, end up on competing sides of the debate. And it matters to us, the audience, because we care about the characters. Number three, be imaginative with your exposition. So it's about conveying information, but you can do it in creative ways uh, as you uh, communicate this necessary information. Uh, so my favorite show, The Wire, has many examples of this, uh, one of which is where D'Angelo Boxdale, a lieutenant in the Boxdale criminal organization, teaches chess to two of his soldiers. So this is exposition, which explains the hierarchy of the organization and their place in it. But it's an interesting scene for so many reasons beyond just the information uh, it's given. And finally, number four, remember, it's not about you. So you are conveying a story to your audience. So you want to inform inform them only as much as they need to be informed to stay invested in the story. So you want to create unknowns in your story, then use exposition to answer questions that your audience actually has and cares about. It's not about forcing information you feel is important, but doesn't actually serve the story you're telling. So if it's not needed, defer it or leave it out completely. So just remember that exposition is an absolute, absolutely necessary tool for your story. It's only a problem when it's done badly. Uh, and that is the tip. Uh, so there'll be a video version of this storytelling tip later on YouTube. You can also send us your tips and we'll read them out on the show, whether it's a comic, manga, game, book, or something else. Uh, you can send that across to feedback at myamada.com or join our Discord and let us know there. Uh, so Tazzy, let's check in with our guests and find out what they are up to. So this is the part of the podcast where we get to know a little bit about what our guest is working on and where you can find them. Um, so Gary, what projects or uh, interesting news do you have going on at the moment and where can we find you? Uh, so first of all, I just want to say, um, you know, Nigel, you're you're my new best friend because you said The Wire is the best TV show, and I completely agree. Oh, yeah. So Hands down for sure. But yeah, uh, as for what I've been working on, I don't think there's too much of an update from last time I was on the show. Uh, basically, the the projects I was working on then still haven't come out, but they're in kind of post production. Um, so. They should be uh, hopefully coming out this year. Uh, one of them is an audio documentary um, about the career of uh, Jerry Lawson, who is a, a black video game engineer who um, created uh, the, the console with the first cartridge mechanism back in the, the 1970s. Um, so that should hopefully be coming out later this year. Um, Amazon is basically just adding their magic to it. It's going to be a, a, a audible document documentary, um, so you know it will be available in audio form. And basically, I, I helped uh, write the script for that project. Yeah. So also, I have a book that I co-authored uh, with an American writer, which is a story loosely based on their life, and that is set back in the '90s during like the uh, the height of like. Uh, the hip hop industry. So basically, you know, it's it's like a uh, sort of like a rags to riches story about a young a young lady who uh, was subject to abuse in her family, and uh, she ends up moving in with her boyfriend at the time. And 
um, he he's an aspiring rapper, and they basically uh, developed this plan to kind of make it in the hip hop industry in New York. Uh, but they begin to find out how corrupt uh, the industry is, um, and they also get mixed up in a lot of uh, street stuff. So uh, that's uh, the the book is called Gully, and that should be coming out also later this year. We don't have a solid release date, but hopefully in the next couple months or so. And then also I have uh, my own book project, which is uh, an urban fantasy uh, standalone story that I've been working on. And and then I'll also um, hopefully have the follow up to my previous book, uh, Descendant of the Elders. Hopefully uh, that will be coming out next year. So that's currently what I'm working on. I need the next Descendant of the Elders. (laughs) Yeah. uh, I've been so busy, like I haven't, I haven't actually written on it in so long, and I kind of miss the characters now. So, yeah, I'm hoping to really uh, get back to it as soon as possible. On wait, <laughs> and where can we find you? So uh, you can find me on Twitter at Gary Swaby. Uh, that's spelled S W A B Y Swaby. Um, and then also you can uh, find me at my website, uh, GaryAswaby.com. Um, on that website, I kind of talk about my projects and also like living with sickle cell um, and things of that nature. And then also, um, if you're into video games, um, you can go to thecoalition.com, coalition spelled, coalition spelled with a K. Um, and that is our video games media website, you know, where we basically cover, uh, you know, video games and movies and things of that nature. A lot of pop culture things also now. But yeah, so you can go to any one of those places and you'll find me. Thank you. We will put those links into the show notes for you to find them easily. Yeah. So thank you, Gary. I also agree with you thinking The Wire is the best show. Thank you for that. Thank you for joining us today. My pleasure. And if you enjoyed this episode of Story X Story, make sure that you are subscribed to the podcast so you don't miss an episode. You can also give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. This helps us reach new listeners and fans of story discussions. Don't forget to check out our own stories on the My Matter website. We've got a number of titles available right now and we're working on the new release Serious Through the Fog, which is coming summer, spring-ish summer time. Uh, you can check out the stories that we have now at mymatter.com forward slash manga. And for the people interested in video games, you can join our Gamepad Discord community and check out the new Studio 77 membership for exclusive access to gamepad events and content from the Maya Matter universe. A reminder that we release new episodes on Thursdays that include creator interviews, video game discussions, and deep dives into stories across pop culture. You can always give us a shout directly. Our email address is feedback at myamada.com and our website with links to subscribe is myamada.com forward slash story x story. Thank you for tuning in. and Until next time, stay safe and protect your thoughts, people. Take care, everyone. Thank you.